Chapter 15 of Herb of Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Eastman. Herb of Grace by Rosa Nuchat Carey. Chapter 15 Betty is a Trump. A character is like an acrostic or Alexandrian stanza. Read it forward, backward, or across, it still spells the same thing. We pass for what we are. Character teaches above our wills. Emerson It had been Malcolm's intention to go back to town on the ensuing Monday, but on Dinah's pressing invitation he promised to remain another day. You know I am due at the manor house on Thursday, he observed, as they sat at breakfast the next morning. And I must have a couple of days in town first. It is a very short visit, she returned regretfully, and you are to dine at the vicarage tomorrow evening. I could not get out of it, he replied quickly, but he glanced at Elizabeth as he spoke. Mr. Charrington never gave me the option of refusing, he seemed to look on it as a foregone conclusion that his invitation would be accepted. He was so very kind and cordial. He wants me to see his library, and to show me some rare books he has got. Oh, yes, he is a collector of curious books and first editions. He has a very valuable library. It is his hobby, is it not, Dinah? Old books, old wine, and plenty of learned talk. You will be in luck's way, Mr. Herrick and Elizabeth flashed an amused look at him. "'I suppose Mr. Carlyon will be there,' observed Dinah composedly, as she replenished Malcolm's cup. Cedric had not yet made his appearance, but they could hear him whistling in the distance. But before Malcolm could answer in the negative, Elizabeth broke in again. "'You are wrong there, Di. Mr. Carlyon never goes out on Saturday evenings.' It is his day for writing his sermon, and I have never known him break his rule. Mr. Charrington wishes to have Mr. Herrick to himself. He, with another smile, knows two are company and three are none. Well, good people, I must not dawdle this morning, as there is so much to do. And as Elizabeth rose from the table, she gave her sister a meaning glance. And Dinah, who was like wax in Elizabeth's hands, took the hint at once. "'We are so glad you have made up your mind to stay until Tuesday,' she said cordially, "'for we are asking some people to come over for tennis on Monday afternoon. Elizabeth has gone off to write the notes now.' "'Why on earth could she not have said so?' thought Malcolm, with secret irritation. But Dinah went on cheerfully. "'It will be only an informal affair. There is no time to arrange a regular garden-party.' We will keep that until you take up your quarters at the crow's nest. We generally have one big affair before the summer is over, and then our friends come down from town, and we have to commandeer all the carriages in the place to meet the train. Elizabeth calls it the Templeton's Bean Feast. Yes, I see. And Malcolm forced a smile at the little joke. This will be a very different function, continued Dinah. We are only asking about five-and-twenty people. We shall have tea in the hall. It is the coolest place in this weather, 
and there will be two or three sets of tennis, and croquet for those who like it. It was all Elizabeth's plan. You have no idea what a talent she has for organization. She almost takes my breath away sometimes. She planned everything last night, and had the list ready for me when I went to bid her good night. That accounts for the light in the red gallery when Cedric and I came in, remarked Malcolm. Yes, we were dreadfully late, but Elizabeth was so wide awake that I was quite ashamed of my own drowsiness. I think we shall get a pleasant party together. And as Cedric came in at that moment, Dinah retailed their little plan for his benefit. Cedric was delighted and voted Betty a brick. Any form of sociability was welcome to him. An impromptu garden party in Malcolm's honor met with his decided approval. "'David must give us our revenge,' he said, chuckling with glee at the idea. But Malcolm did not respond to this. He felt inwardly provoked at the whole affair, and regretted that he had promised to remain another day. Could not Miss Elizabeth have guessed— Shaw, what an ass he was! How was she to know? That a motley and miscellaneous collection of people was his distinct aversion? A rustic oya podrida, an omnium gatherum, was not to his taste. It was his last evening, too, and he would have to make himself pleasant to strangers. He knew what these impromptu garden parties meant. People drove over from distant villages and expected to remain late. There would be no dinner, no coffee on the terrace, no songs in the dimly lighted drawing-room. Ah, just so, was not Cedric endorsing his thought at this very moment. Betty is a trump, Di. She has thought of just the right people. I suppose we shall have a scratch meal when the rush has gone, but we must ask the Brent girls to have a snack with us. Oh, of course, Elizabeth said so at once, and she mentioned the Ross party, too. Tina and Patty will expect to remain. They always do, and they think the drive back by moonlight the best part of the fun. Very well, Cedric, dear. You will go over on your bicycle and leave the notes? Well, I don't mind taking trouble in a good cause, he returned in a virtuous tone. And then Dinah, with an air of great satisfaction, addressed herself to her guest. "'I wonder if you would care to drive Elizabeth over to Earlsfield this afternoon. She has a good many commissions to execute. Brooks has to wait for the vet, as one of our carriage horses is lame, and I do not like her to go alone with James.' But Malcolm carefully disguised his pleasure at this unexpected request. "'Is this Miss Elizabeth's idea, too?' His tone rather puzzled Dinah. "'Oh, dear, no. At least I think not. I rather fancy I suggested it to her.' And she made no objection. "'My dear Mr. Herrick, of course not. She will be only too grateful to you. James is a good lad, but we dare not trust him with Brown Becky, and though Elizabeth drives very well, she wants to be free for her business.' "'Then in that case I shall be delighted to go.' and there was no fault to be found with Malcolm's tone now. His satisfaction was hardly diminished by a hair's breadth, when Cedric suggested that they might go round by Rotherwood on their way home and give David a verbal invitation. "'He might be engaged if we waited until tomorrow,' 
he said seriously. The busy D is rather a popular person, and the young ladies of Earlsfield and Staplegrove are always on the lookout for him. You would not dare to say that if Elizabeth were in the room. But Dinah spoke quite innocently, and had no arrière-pensée. I know that Betty monopolizes him to any extent, retorted Cedric, and it is a shame when that poor little Tina— Then Dinah quite flushed up, and said quickly, Hush! How can you be so silly, Cedric? Tina is a perfect baby. Who cares what a foolish little flirting thing says about Elizabeth? You ought not to repeat such speeches. There is always so much gossip in a village, observed Malcolm, with a laudable intention of casting oil on the troubled waters, for he saw that Dinah was really vexed at Cedric's careless speech and an unmarried curate is always rather an attraction for some genus of young ladies. Mr. Carlyon never encouraged them, returned Dinah quietly. The fact is, Mr. Herrick, Tina Ross is rather a mischievous little person. She is very pretty and very much spoiled, and she cares far too much for admiration. My sister used to be very fond of her. She was quite a favorite at one time, but the other day she owned that she was greatly disappointed in her, and that she was afraid Tina was rather an empty-headed little thing. "'Oh, yes, we understand that, don't we, Betty?' retorted Cedric, nodding at Elizabeth knowingly as she entered the room. "'Tina is in your black books now.' But Elizabeth received this with perfect serenity. "'Oh, she is an amusing child,' she returned carelessly, but she makes a very common mistake. She thinks a pretty face and a flippant tongue and a childish manner are perfectly irresistible, but in her study of mankind she is certainly an unlessened girl. "'I think old David admires her,' observed Cedric casually. He spoke in such a matter-of-fact way that Elizabeth was quite taken in. "'To be sure he admires her,' she said seriously. How can he help it? Even Mr. Herrick, who, I have been told, is really a severe critic on female beauty, will admire her too when he sees her on Monday. You shall have an introduction. With a mischievous look. We will not allow Mr. Carlyon to monopolize her. Here they both stared at her. Tina is an old friend of his. Now then, Cedric lad, if you have finished your breakfast, I want you in the morning-room. One moment, please, and Malcolm barred her way. I believe I am to drive you over to Earlsfield this afternoon. Dinah has arranged it, then, with rather an inscrutable little smile. Thank you, it will be very kind, and I know it will be a relief to her mind. But she added hastily, there is no use in our going round by Rotherwood. We can post Mr. Carlyon's note. If there is time, we might go on the downs. You will like that much better. And then Elizabeth gave him a friendly little nod. Malcolm enjoyed his afternoon. Brown Becky was in excellent form, and it gave him a great deal of pleasure to drive her. And then Elizabeth was so sociable and so altogether charming. He had glanced more than once at the paper she held in her hands. "'Are you going to order all these things?' he asked. 
and she had laughed in his face. Five and twenty to thirty people to entertain is rather a large order. We have plenty of cider and fruit, and of course there will be claret cup, but we have no time to make cakes. Besides, there must be a cold collation for at least a dozen. Oh, yes, I understand, he returned good-humouredly. But he was secretly surprised by the quickness with which her commissions were executed. Evidently, the ladies of the woodhouse were people of consideration to the tradesmen of Earlsfield, for obsequious shopmen stood bowing and smiling on the threshold. And was it his fancy, or was there an added stateliness in the second Miss Templeton's step and carriage as she threaded the pretty little marketplace, exchanging greetings with every other person she met? Now I have finished, she observed presently and you and Brown Becky have behaved like a couple of angels. Then she chanted merrily, Oh, who will o'er the downs with me? And Malcolm turned the mare's head in the direction she pointed out. It had been very hot in the marketplace, but when they had gained the open down, a honey-sweet wind blew refreshingly in their faces, and not only the moorland but the roadside was clothed with the purpling heather. Malcolm checked the mare involuntarily, and sat silently feasting his eyes on the glorious colouring before him. "'No Tyrian garment could equal that,' he said half to himself. Elizabeth looked at him curiously. "'I thought you would like it,' she returned, well pleased by his rapt admiration of her favourite view. "'Like it! I only wish I had Keston here.' but if I am a living man I will bring him in verity too. What a grand old world it is after all, Miss Templeton, though we do our best to spoil it. Ah, uh, you are right there, and Elizabeth's voice was a little sad. Do you remember what Clough says, continued Malcolm quietly, the workday burden of dull life about the footsore flags of a weary world. We all have our peddler's pack to carry through Vanity Fair, but how good for us to turn aside into some of nature's holy places which she keeps so fair and sweet and untainted, and to take a long draught of the elixir of life. Mr. Herrick, do you ever write poetry? Malcolm shook his head. No, he said regretfully. One day, if you care to hear it, I will tell you the story of an impotent genius. An impotent genius? It was evident that Elizabeth was puzzled, but then she had only known Malcolm Herrick five days. Malcolm nodded gravely. The story of a man who was halt and maimed and crippled from his birth, a tongue-tied poet and a paralyzed artist. The story is a sad one, Miss Templeton, but it will keep. Elizabeth's eyes danced with amusement she began to have an idea of his meaning. "'I rather think you are a humorist, Mr. Herrick.' And then Malcolm laughed, and after that they fell into quite an interesting conversation. Elizabeth turned the subject to her own ignorance, and begged Malcolm to tell her what books she ought to read. "'Dinah puts me to shame,' she observed frankly. "'She reads all the best books,' and she often tries to persuade me to follow her example. The fact is, I am rather a desultory sort of person, 
and I have so many interesting occupations that I never know what to do first. One must always have a little method in one's daily life, returned Malcolm indulgently. How would you like me to make you out a list? You might slip any books you did not want to read. Then Elizabeth thanked him quite gratefully. I mean to turn over a new leaf on my thirty-first birthday, she continued serenely. Isn't it a great age, Mr. Herrick? But Malcolm only smiled in answer. He was thinking how strange it seemed that she was actually his senior by two years, but he soon grasped the idea that Elizabeth Templeton was one of those women who grow old slowly, and who are sweetest in their ripened prime. The evening at the vicarage passed very pleasantly, and when Malcolm took his leave he was much surprised at the lateness of the hour, and sorely disturbed when he found Dinah sitting up for him. But she would not listen to his excuses. An hour later does not matter to me, and I was reading and quite forgot the time. I am so glad you have enjoyed yourself. And Dinah dismissed him with her gentle smile. Malcolm was rather disappointed with the vicar's sermon the next day. It was learned and full of quotations from the fathers, but he could not but perceive that it was perfectly unsuited to a village congregation. Can these dry bones live? he thought, as they came out into the sunny churchyard. Mr. Carlyon had read the service. His manner had been extremely reverent and devout, but Malcolm found his delivery unpleasing. The peculiarity in his speech was very noticeable in the reading-desk, and there was no clearness of articulation. "'I am not versed in phonology,' he said reluctantly, when Elizabeth asked him a little anxiously about Mr. Carlyon's reading. "'But I know you would not have questioned me if you did not want to know my real opinion. I think it is rather a pity that Mr. Carlyon has not taken elocution lessons.' "'You are quite right,' she returned quietly. "'I can assure you that he is fully aware of his deficiencies.' "'I am not sure that he has not some physical difficulties to surmount,' went on Malcolm. "'But however that may be, a course of elocution and some sound advice about the management of the voice would have been of immense value. I have always thought that every young man who intends to take holy orders should be compelled to attend elocution classes as part of the training. You will not think me too critical in saying all this.' But Elizabeth, with evident sincerity, assured him that she perfectly agreed with him. They all spent the afternoon down at the pool, and Malcolm read aloud to the sisters, while Cedric and the dogs enjoyed a nap. When he had finished the poem—it was Browning's Christmas and Easter Eve he had been reading—Dinah thanked him with tears in her eyes. "'I never heard anyone read so beautifully,' she said. But Elizabeth was silent. Only, as they were crossing the little bridge, she turned for a moment to Malcolm, who was following her closely. "'You have a right to be critical,' she said meaningly. "'I should think you must have been top of the class.' And a flush of gratification came to his face. They all went to church again in the evening, and this time Mr. Charrington read the prayers and the lessons, in a mellow, cultured voice that was very agreeable to Malcolm's ear. Mr. Carlyon preached. 
Malcolm settled himself in his corner and prepared himself for twenty minutes' endurance. But to his surprise he soon found himself roused and interested. If the preacher's articulation was imperfect, if he took hurried breaths and stumbled here and there over a sentence, Malcolm soon ceased to notice it. The treasure might be in an earthen vessel, but it was goodly treasure for all that. The priest might be young and inexperienced, but he had his evangel, his message to deliver, and the earnestness of his purpose was reflected in his face. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, was the text, but before the short sermon was over, the row of ploughboys near them had roused from their drowsiness and stroked down their sleek heads with embarrassed fingers, as David Carlyon's voice rang through the darkening church with the concluding words. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Involuntarily Malcolm glanced at Elizabeth as they rose, but she did not see him. Her large bright eyes were fixed on the preacher for a moment. Then her head bent meekly to receive the blessing, and to Malcolm's disappointment she made no allusion to the sermon on their way home. End of chapter 15